Welcome to the Mind Medicine Australia podcast, where we explore breakthrough innovations in mental illness. If you are tuning into this podcast for the first time, I'm Tommy Moore. I'm your host. I am a nutritionist and exercise scientist, as well as a, a very passionate mental health advocate. Mind Medicine Australia is a charity that is committed to help alleviate the suffering caused by mental illness through expanding the treatment options available to medical practitioners and their patients. So Mind Medicine Australia is supporting the development of psychedelic assisted psychotherapy programs within Australia. And my role as host of this podcast is to speak to psychologists, neuroscientists, psychiatrists, and leaders in the space from all over the world to help shine a light on breakthrough therapies for mental illness. Okay, this episode is part two of a two-part series exploring the pharmacology and therapeutic mechanisms of the medicines that Mind Medicine Australia is wholly focused on or, or at least most closely focused on. They are the medicines or treatments that have been given breakthrough therapy designation by the US Food and Drug Administration or the FDA, and they are psilocybin and MDMA. So in part one of this episode, I spoke about psilocybin and part two is obviously MDMA. So these two episodes will be a point of reference to help understand and give context to the mechanisms by which psychedelic medicine have their effect. And I will reiterate that I'm not a physician, I'm not a neurologist, nor am I a neuroscientist. So please take that into consideration. I have a science background and am hugely passionate about science and medicine. I talk to neuroscientists and physicians. I read through research papers, listen to podcasts, read and listen to books. So that is where I get my information from. With that said, the information in this episode is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for the advice provided by a doctor or other healthcare professional. Patients should not use the information contained for diagnosing a health problem or disease. Patients should consult with a doctor or other healthcare professional for medical advice or information about diagnosis and treatment. All right, let's do this. Pharmacology is the study or the science of drug use, modes, and action. So in this case, where does MDMA or 3 4 methylene dioxymethamphetamine exert its effect in our brain and body? What receptors does it attach to? What is its therapeutic index? How is it metabolized? Now, there seems to be a lot of rumors and speculation surrounding MDMA's toxicity and safety profile. And I had a previous conversation with Rick Doblin where we, we spoke about this. So I'm not going to discuss it here, but if you are wanting to hear more about its toxicity or its, or its therapeutic index, I will advise you to, to look back to that episode. But I can tell you that in medicinal doses, MDMA is very safe and has next to no toxicity or at least very low toxicity when regarding the medicinal dose. Okay. MDMA is a small organic compound known as a monoamine alkaloid and it is in the family of amphetamines. Amphetamines are stimulants and stimulants tend to increase or decrease certain chemicals or, or chemical activity within the brain and body. So other amphetamines that you are probably well aware of include dextroamphetamine, which is used for treating ADHD or attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. 
There is also amphetamine sulfate, commonly known as speed, and is listed as a Schedule II drug. And this is in reference to the Drug Enforcement Administration, or the DEA. Schedule II substances are regarded as drugs with high potential for abuse, with use or misuse potentially leading to psychological or physiological dependence and are considered dangerous. Schedule II substances are known as controlled substances and they indicate that there is still therapeutic application or use. Another common example within the amphetamine family is methamphetamine, commonly referred to as meth or lice, and is also considered a Schedule II substance. So despite what many people think in regards to to methamphetamine, there is some therapy value. I'm not sure what that is, but it is considered a Schedule II substance. This brings us to MDMA, often referred to as ecstasy, is considered a Schedule I substance, meaning that there is no current accepted use as medicine and a high potential for addiction or misuse. So this scheduling I'm referring to is DEA scheduling, which is a United States law enforcement agency. In Australia, we have the Therapeutic Goods Administration, or the TGA, where we have a scheduling system from 1 to 10. In the previous episode, I spoke about psilocybin and its pharmacology and and therapeutic mechanisms, but I did forget to mention its scheduling. So psilocybin falls under the same category or scheduling category as as MDMA does, which is a Schedule 9 substance. And and this is in reference to the TGA. So just to clear any confusion I may have just caused, much like a Schedule 1 substance in the DEA, Schedule 9 indicates a prohibited substance with no accepted medical use and high potential for, for addiction. At the moment... As it stands, or as I record this podcast, there is an amendment process that is underway within the TGA that will potentially amend both MDMA and psilocybin from Schedule 9 to Schedule 8. A Schedule 8 substance is very similar to a Schedule 2 substance within the DEA, which is controlled medicines. So in much the same way as other amphetamines are used in treating particular illnesses or disorders, This would allow, or this scheduling would allow medical practitioners, psychiatrists, and other healthcare professionals to access these drugs in a controlled therapy environment, which is the suggested context for these medicines based on the research. It will not work like Ritalin or dextroamphetamine does where the patient takes the substance home and and uses it almost on a daily basis or, or at least regularly. MDMA will only be available in a clinical context and the patient does not take any substance away from that medical setting. If you've been following these episodes, you'll know that this scheduling system really doesn't justify the huge potential for these medicines to be used in psychiatry and other clinical settings. Okay, why should this substance be available in psychiatric and medical settings? Well, before we get into that, let's look over a bit of history. MDMA was first synthesized around 1912 by a chemist at a pharmaceutical company called Merck, spelt M-E-R-C-K, in Germany. At that time, Merck was hoping to develop regulators of bleeding. The chemical makeup of, of MDMA is characterized by the presence of the methylene dioxy ring, which occurs naturally in compounds such as myristicin, which is present in nutmeg, so it can be synthesized from natural sources, 
but it can also be synthesized from organic precursors or in industry and pharmaceutical manufacturing. MDMA falls into the category of intactogens, which are serotonin receptor agonists. Now, you may be familiar or you may not be familiar with classical psychedelics like psilocybin. They are also serotonin receptor agonists, but biased towards the 5-HT2A receptor, which is a serotonin receptor in the brain. Serotonin or 5-HT receptors are postsynaptic receptors that have 14 subtypes in mammals. So when I say receptor agonist, this essentially means a chemical that competes or binds to a particular receptor and incurs a biological response. So in some ways you can imagine it as though MDMA is mimicking the effects of serotonin, but it does have additional effects on on different systems of the body and we will certainly get into that. Serotonin is a neuromodulator and it has a whole host and long list of different functions. Many people think of serotonin just as this happy hormone, but it really influences a lot of different things, including mood, appetite, sleep regulation, perception, and other high level functions like social functioning. As I mentioned, there are multiple types of serotonin receptors in our brain and body. So which receptor they bind to is going to dictate what response will take place. We know that despite MDMA and psilocybin's similarity in that they bind to particular serotonin receptors, they do incur very different physiological and psychological responses. So in terms of their use in treatment or therapy, the application is quite different. MDMA is a member of the larger group of ring-substituted phenethylamines. You don't necessarily need to know all of these words, but I know there are many of you or or at least some of you that are interested to know them. The first part of this podcast is discussing pharmacology. So we're looking at science and metabolism. If you are not scientific, that's okay. You don't need to know all of these words and concepts to understand why MDMA is effective in treating certain mental illnesses. When we get into the therapeutic mechanisms, it will all start to make sense. So so bear with me if you aren't scientific. Once ingested, MDMA is quickly absorbed into the bloodstream through mucous membranes and the stomach wall. It is both a high affinity substrate and potent mechanism-based inhibitor of a particular system in the liver. For the aficionados out there, it is the cytochrome P452D6 system. Essentially, it's just where it gets metabolized. In healthy humans, MDMA has a half-life of six to seven hours. The main psychoactive effects are due to MDMA binding to a serotonin transporter protein, which causes significant release and reuptake inhibition of serotonin. Now, I'll explain this further. For those unfamiliar with the nervous system or, or nerves, if you imagine a neuron or nerve cell, much like most cells in our body, it has a nucleus in the middle with genetic information as well as other common cellular structures, but it also has axons that spread out from the main cell body that connect neurons to each other. So that's how communication takes place. So this allows for the communication through electrical impulse. So these axons can stretch out across small spaces within the brain or even longer spaces like between the brain and say the lower leg. When these neurons meet or the space between these axons is called a synaptic cleft. 
neurotransmitters travel from the presynaptic neuron to the end of the axon on the neuron that is directing the signal into the synapse and subsequently act on the receptors in the postsynaptic neuron and induce a biological response. So the serotonin transporter is a protein that is locked into the cell surface of the presynaptic neuron. Its function is to transfer serotonin molecules back into presynaptic vesicles from the synaptic cleft to prevent the receptors from exerting their neurotransmitter activity. They act as the gatekeeper, essentially. They have the ability to release serotonin, but also prevent too much serotonin attaching to the postsynaptic receptors. Serotonin transporters function can be affected by a number of different factors, but the two main modulatory effects are reuptake inhibition and neurotransmitter release, which I've just mentioned, but I'll touch on that a little bit further. Reuptake inhibition is a drug or chemical that binds to the transporter and prevents the normal process of reuptake into the storage vesicles. Now, you may be familiar with selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors or SSRIs, also called antidepressants, that prevent the serotonin transporter from bringing serotonin back to the presynaptic neuron. MDMA also acts as a serotonin reuptake inhibitor. The other modulatory effect I said was neurotransmitter release. In terms of serotonin transporter modulation, neurotransmitter release is a drug or chemical that binds to the transporter and reverses the direction of neurotransmitter transport, which results in efflux or the flowing out of the transmitter into the synaptic cleft. MDMA also acts as a serotonin releaser and consequently reverses the action of the serotonin transporter protein. So instead of the transporter protein bringing the serotonin back to the presynaptic uh, neuron, it'll actually reverse its effect. So it'll actually go to the postsynaptic neuron where it'll exert its effect and, and consequently result in a, in a physiological or, or biological change. Okay. It's thought that this serotonin release is most responsible for the psychoactive effects of MDMA. So if we just revise that quickly, because there's a few concepts that, that will be new to a lot of people, MDMA causes a significant release and also reuptake inhibition of serotonin. Now, serotonin isn't the only system that MDMA modulates. The dopamine and noradrenaline or norepinephrine systems are also affected in response to MDMA to a slightly lesser degree, but uh, certainly significant. Now, in terms of the 5-HT receptor or the serotonin receptor, increased serotonin can induce positive mood and creative thinking. Serotonin is sometimes called the, the here and now molecule. It makes us feel connected and content with what we are doing or, or what we have. MDMA also increases dopamine and noradrenaline where it gets its stimulatory properties. Dopamine is a molecule with multiple functions. Some of those functions you'll be familiar with like reward and pleasure, but in the musculature system, it has to do with initiating movement. So those with Parkinson's disease often can't initiate movement and have depletions in dopamine. Dopamine isn't just about reward and pleasure. It is actually almost more to do with wanting or the desire to do something. Dopamine and noradrenaline can both increase the level of alertness and arousal, but also conscious registration of external stimuli. 
alpha-2 activity is also increased, which can be linked with calmness and relaxation. Now, I am reducing the value of these molecules for simplicity purposes, of course. Now, there's also a release of oxytocin and prolactin. Now, many of you may be familiar with oxytocin in terms of perhaps the birth of a child or those feelings of empathy or, or deep bonding. So just to recap all of these neurotransmitters and, and neuromodulators that I've spoken about, we've got a release of a whole host of chemicals in response to MDMA administration, namely serotonin, responsible for changes in perception, mood and meaning, dopamine and norepinephrine, which increase the level of alertness and arousal, alpha-2, responsible for calmness and relaxation, as well as oxytocin and prolactin, that feeling of connection to someone or something. Now let's talk about the neurobiology as it relates to MDMA. So I want to talk about some brain structures and systems and the corresponding psychological effects. There are two main notable structures and, and systems or regions in the brain that I want to point out to you in regards to the MDMA state, the amygdala and the hippocampus. The amygdala is a collection of neurons or cells near the base of the brain. And this is where emotions are provided meaning and remembered. And with that comes the associations, perceptions, and responses to them. The amygdala provides an emotional memory that is often attached to a physical memory, though the physical and memory are laid down in separate parts of the brain. And this is important because when we are talking about MDMA therapy, in the treatment of trauma or post-traumatic stress disorder, understanding memory and how memories are formed and remembered is critical. So that's the amygdala, the emotional response of a memory. I'll come back to that in a moment. The other region I mentioned was the hippocampus. The hippocampus is a complex brain region or structure that has a major role in memory and learning. When we think about memory and learning, we often think about neural plasticity or the ability for the brain to adapt and change to experience. Conscious memory for a new experience is initially reliant upon the information that is stored within the hippocampus. It's also dependent on information stored in the neocortex or the upper and outer region of the brain. But again, for simplicity's purposes, let's hone in on the hippocampus. So both the hippocampus and amygdala are part of the limbic system. Now I'll mention the hippocampus is associated with memory and learning and is very plastic or adaptable part of the brain. But unfortunately, if you have a traumatic memory, you can't just wipe that memory away. That memory is there for good. So I'm talking about the physical memory here, the memory of what someone saw, heard, felt, and so on. The sensory experience of the events that took place. And for every physical memory, there is an emotional memory that is attached to it. So when you are recalling a particular memory from the hippocampus, you will often recall the same neurotransmitters or the emotions that were deployed from that memory. But as I said earlier, the emotional memory is stored separately from the physical memory. Yes, they usually do come hand in hand, but when you are recalling that physical memory, there will be that cascading effect and the emotional memory will come through as though you will feel a similar feeling as you did when you had that initial experience. Now, if you imagine those with trauma and post-traumatic stress disorder, when they recall a physical memory, 
in comes the emotional flooding that caused them the trauma in the first place. This is why it can be so difficult for patients with PTSD to recall their memories as just remembering the event will cause significant emotional distress. This is why it's so difficult for patients who have PTSD to work through that trauma because recalling the trauma will deploy all those emotions and neurotransmitters and that stress that was caused them the trauma in the first place. So you can imagine how difficult it is working through these traumas because you get this emotional flooding and often people just completely avoid any trigger associated with that memory. So I said the physical memory can't be altered, but what's exciting and incredibly promising is that the emotional memory can be altered. Much easier said than done, of course, but research has shown and results have shown that MDMA decreases activity in the limbic system, which is a set of structures involved in this emotional response. Communication between the medial temporal lobe and medial prefrontal cortex, which is involved in emotional control, was shown to be reduced in the MDMA state. Now this effect, this drop in activity in the limbic is opposite to patterns seen in people who suffer from anxiety and anxiety related conditions. MDMA also increased communication between the amygdala and the hippocampus. Studies on patients with PTSD have found reduction in communication between these areas. And what we find through functional magnetic resonance imaging or fMRI brain scans is that there is a blood redistribution away from the amygdala, this fear response mechanism. So in the MDMA state, in a clinical setting, patients are asked to recall that trauma, but because the MDMA has softened this fear response, patients now have a window into redesigning that emotional memory that was attached to the physical event or that trauma. Now this is massive. When you see that only 5% of patients with PTSD are getting better with current treatments, the potential for MDMA-assisted therapy is huge and, and very exciting. Now, some of the corresponding psychological effects of the MDMA state are euphoria, a sense of well-being, increased sociability, increased empathy for others, as well as a market reduction or eradication even of anxiety. So this leads me into the therapeutic mechanisms, which I've already started to paint the picture of. Essentially, MDMA-assisted therapy works as a form of exposure therapy with reduced negative behavioral responses, such as anxiety, and in many cases, complete avoidance. So many patients will just completely reject the idea of recalling or triggering those traumatic memories, and you can't really blame them. These memories can be horrific. MDMA reduces amygdala activity and thus decreases hypervigilance or this heightened anxiety that comes with the emotional replay, which gives the patient a window in redesigning their emotional response. With the increases of oxytocin and prolactin comes increase in empathy and trust and also therapeutic alliance, working alongside the clinician or medical professional. And all of this allows unimpaired memory recall and processing, which is often very, very difficult or impossible to access if you have that emotional flooding coming through every time you're replaying that memory. So MDMA is typically utilized therapeutically in conjunction with psychotherapy, and that has the umbrella term of psychedelic assisted psychotherapy. 
As part of the psychotherapy, patients will undergo preparatory and integrative therapy, which are considered as essential as the active drug session. Some of this preparatory psychotherapy includes obviously preparation of the participant for the overall process, what to expect from a psychedelic experience. It includes establishing a therapeutic alliance. So like I said, that's the therapist-patient relationship, as well as the discussion of the context of which this medicine is going to be used. And context is, of course, vitally important in establishing positive outcomes. Patients are also made aware of possible states of mind or breakthroughs that may occur during the session. And the drug session itself needs to be, of course, in the right context, the right set and setting. Set being the patient's emotional, cognitive and behavioral mindset. And setting the physical environment, which also includes music and the facilitators of the experience. The therapists present are there to support, not guide, the experience. And this experience will take place over about six to eight hours. Patients are also encouraged to speak to their therapists or facilitators to help process and materialize it and to support when difficult psychological material comes up. So then the integrative psychotherapy or the integration after the session has happened to conduct an analysis to make sense of what they experienced and also to help frame the experience to the broader context and perspective of the patient's condition. MDMA-assisted psychotherapy has shown excellent promise in a variety of disorders and particularly post-traumatic stress disorder, but also social anxiety and conditions that are comorbid with trauma, like substance use disorder. It's certainly important for me to point out some of the potential risks of MDMA because with any drug, there is always going to be some risk involved. Acute or short-term risks can include increased blood pressure, possible disturbances in sleep and reduced appetite. There is an acute risk of cardiac events, hypothermia and hyperatremia, but this is almost exclusively at high or non-therapeutic doses and generally in non-clinical contexts. There is a risk of serotonin syndrome, but again, this would be a result of excessive misuse. In the context of MDMA-assisted psychotherapy, where patients are only given two or three medicinal doses of MDMA in a therapy setting over time, these side effects are very, very unlikely and are extremely uncommon. Now, as I'm recording this, MAPS's phase three trial of MDMA-assisted therapy for PTSD has been released, and I'd like to discuss these findings and implications. MAPS is an acronym for the Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies and was founded by Rick Doblin in 1986. So I spoke to Rick Doblin a couple of months ago. So we spoke about MDMA and the wider context of that. So please tune into that episode if you're interested in learning more, particularly from him. But MAPS have been at the forefront of MDMA research over the past number of decades. So these phase three trials replicated and expanded on the phase two trials or results that indicated MDMA-assisted therapy may be an effective and economical tool for treating PTSD resulting from any cause. I believe the Journal of Nature Medicine will publish a peer-reviewed paper that details the results of the study. But what did the study find? 
they found that 67% of participants who received three MDMA-assisted therapy sessions no longer qualified for PTSD diagnosis, and 88% experienced clinically meaningful reduction in symptoms. The trial treated 90 patients with severe chronic PTSD with an average duration of 14 years. Some of these participants included PTSD related to combat-related events, accidents, abuse, and sexual harm. Contrast that to the 5% who are improving their symptoms with current existing treatments. Yet, MDMA is still considered a Schedule 1 substance. We are hopeful that these results will facilitate FDA approval in 2023 for this breakthrough designated therapy. But for many people who are struggling so deeply with these illnesses, waiting another two or three years at the potential for it to be accepted is not acceptable. These patients need help. They need effective treatment. These results can no longer be ignored and there are too many people who are struggling. I hope this episode has helped you understand MDMA a little bit more and hopefully detached yourself from any of the stigma that you've been associated MDMA with and to encourage you to, to educate your friends and family about this. Clinical research is a fundamental part of gaining government approval of new drugs and interventions and research into therapeutic applications has interrupted or was interrupted by the global war on drugs but that research is back and it is coming but like I mentioned earlier MDMA is still considered of no current therapeutic use which makes it very difficult to research further considering you're using essentially an illegal substance. We're not asking for this to be handed out at every street corner. We're not asking for it to be handed out to patients even. MDMA-assisted psychotherapy involves patients experiencing two to three medicinal doses accompanied by their therapist. That's it. But indeed, more research is needed for the broader potential of MDMA to shed light on mechanisms of mental illness and brain function. I'm going to leave it at that. We have got some incredible guests coming over the next few weeks and months. Um, next week, Rachel Yehuda, who is an expert in trauma, will will feature in, in the next episode and we talk about MDMA therapy there. We also have David B. Yaden, who has done extensive research in self-transcendence. So he's involved in uh, Johns Hopkins University, um, their Center for Psychedelics and Consciousness Research. Um, you may be filming with Roland Griffiths. So Roland Griffiths, essentially the director there, and David Yaden is one of the researchers. So both of these guests are very knowledgeable and very well-versed individuals in this space. So stay tuned for that. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. If you want to support our endeavors, the best thing that you can do is tell a friend, tell a family member, share this episode with them, share them the podcast, share them some information from the website, let them know. You can also, of course, leave a five-star review on whichever podcast platform you're on. And this, of course, will help expose this information to the people who are looking for it. If you are curious to learn more about psychedelic-assisted therapies and related information, or would like to know a little bit more about the services, events, or programs that Mind Medicine Australia offers, make sure you head to our website, mindmedicineaustralia.org. All right, we did it. Thank you so, so much. I really hope you're enjoying these episodes. And if there's something that you're curious about, 
or have any question related to mind medicine or even a health-related question, please feel free to reach out to me. You're welcome to send me an email, tommy at mindmedicineaustralia.org. You can also send me a message on Instagram. I am at mindbody underscore plants. But until the next episode, keep well.